Well, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to resume our study through Matthew. And we are ready for Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. If you're using the Black Bibles that um, are, were provided there as you came in, um, it can be found on page 819. So Matthew 13, verse 53, if you recall, Jesus just finished a long section um, of teaching where he was giving many parables, uh, and those parables were all on the theme of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so verse 53 will remind us Jesus has just finished that up, and now we um, pick up the narrative and see where, what Jesus does and where he goes next. So I'd ask you once again to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Our passage we want to consider today is Matthew 13, verse 53 through 14, 12. So please follow along as I read. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias' brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. What happens when this world is confronted with God's truth? Follow-up question to that. Should we be surprised if this world rejects the truth of Christ? The title of the sermon today is God's Truth Rejected by the World. And today in Matthew 13 and 14, we want to notice what happens when two of God's prophets bringing God's word, we want to notice what the response is to them. And then I want us to consider what we should do today in light of this consistent response from the world to God's truth. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to make three main points today and then we'll have a few takeaways at the end as well. So beginning in Matthew 13 verse 53, notice first with me the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. Really, I'm just going to give you three headings and this is heading number one. The rejection of Jesus at Nazareth. Again, picking it up in verse 53, which transitions us into this section. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Um, We've seen Jesus do this before when he's been in his itinerant ministry throughout Galilee, right? Going into the different villages and teaching in their synagogues. That was like their little uh, gathering places for worship, right? And... So Jesus does this, but this time he's going to his own hometown. He's going to to Galilee. 
And, and remember, by this time, Jesus has traveled around extensively in this itinerant ministry. And he's been teaching with authority, and he's been casting out demons, and he's been healing the sick. And so he has garnered a lot of attention, right? We've seen that, that great crowds have been following him. And, and, you know, they're all trying to figure out, man, is this the Messiah? And, you know, some are excited, some are just questioning And so here now in verse 54, we have Jesus' first and only recorded return to his hometown of Nazareth. And and just so you can kind of get this in your mind, Nazareth was a small town. I mean, it was like in the Podunks. They uh, estimate that it was probably around 500 people. You know, so I mean, this is a small village. This is where Jesus grew up. They would have all known him and remembered him. As a, as a boy and as a teenager, and now here he is as a, as a rabbi coming back, right? So this would have been a big deal. The, the local hometown boy who's now this popular rabbi has come home. And so no doubt as word got around, hey, Jesus is back. I imagine the whole town came out to hear him teach in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And Luke 4 describes a scene where Jesus goes back to, or in, to Nazareth and teaches. And if we assume that that is talking about the same event, Luke tells us that Jesus read from Isaiah 61. Um, that he opened up the scroll and read from it. And that's one of the servant songs in Isaiah where uh, it's talking about um, God's promised salvation. God's coming salvation brought in by God's promised king the Messiah. And if you remember that account in Luke, Jesus reads it and then he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what he was teaching and saying is, I'm the promised Messiah. I'm the promised king. I'm bringing in the promised deliverance, the, the promised uh, kingdom of God. And, and that's really consistent with what we've seen Jesus teaching in the other synagogues, right? That's what Matthew's been recording for us, that Jesus has been proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God is here. Why is the kingdom of God here? Well, because the king is here. Jesus is the long-awaited king who's come to, to deliver God's people. And so this is no doubt that the way Jesus was teaching here in Nazareth as well. And so the question is then, okay, well... How are the people going to respond to that? How are they going to respond to this, this uh, hometown boy who's become a popular rabbi who's now come back and is proclaiming this to them? Well, look at this verse 54. It says, They were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So far, so good, right? That sounds like that could be a good response. You know, astonished could be a good thing. Uh, what we do know is the, the people of Nazareth are taking note of Jesus, right? They're, they're astonished at his wisdom. They recognize there's something different about Jesus. They're astonished at his wisdom. They're astonished at his mighty works. Just like all the other synagogues where Jesus has taught, the people of Nazareth recognize Jesus teaches with authority, He's not like the other scribes that we've heard. There's something different about him. There's something special about him. He teaches with authority. He teaches with a wisdom, an insight, a clarity that is unlike our other teachers. So they would have heard that for themselves firsthand. And then it says they're also astonished at Jesus' mighty works. I'm, I'm assuming that means they've heard the reports of Jesus' mighty works. Because again, at this point... Jesus' reputation is, is preceding him, right? As word gets out that, wow, Jesus is casting out demons and Jesus is healing all kinds of, of people who are sick, the lame, the blind, the deaf, and even raising the dead. You know, the word reports are just circulating around, so they had heard of that as well. And so they're astonished, but notice what the text goes on to say. Yes, they say, well, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works But verse 55 says, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And then verse 57 really clues us in, doesn't it? And they took offense at him. 
So this is not a good astonishment, or at least it's not an astonishment that leads to a good conclusion. They can't deny Jesus' wisdom and mighty works, but they reject Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. They're like, wait a minute, I don't know what's going on here, but we know this guy, right? We know his family. We've watched him grow up. We remember when he was a snotty-nosed kid. (laughs) And here he is claiming to be the Messiah. Here he is claiming to be the king sent from God. No, he's the son of the carpenter. We know where he's from. He's not from anywhere special. He's like the rest of us, you know, just kind of trailer trash, I guess you'd say, right? Oh, he hasn't been trained by any rabbis. He, hasn't, he didn't come from some palace or something. He's been in the wood shop his whole life. I mean, you know, think about, again, these are the people Jesus lived among up till 30 years old, right? So, I mean, they're, they're like saying, you know, I've got, our, our um, kitchen table was made by Jesus, right? Or, or my, my yoke on, on my oxen was made by Jesus. And now he's claiming to be the Messiah? No. He could not be from God. We know his family. He, and here's, here's what they're saying. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Why? He's too ordinary. He's too ordinary. And notice it says they took offense. They were (laughs) offended at the notion, at the claim that Jesus is making of being the Messiah. And again, there's this is kind of tragic, isn't it? It's I mean it's tragic when anyone rejects Jesus, but especially we're like, you guys should be rejoicing. Right? I mean, you should be rejoicing that, for one, the promised Messiah has come, that God is, is, is keeping his promises, that the, the time is here. But you should especially be rejoicing that God would fulfill his promise to deliver his people through one of your very own. I mean, how exciting should that be, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, there should be like ticker tape parades here, you know, and everybody rallying around and saying, yeah, he's one of us and we're so excited. That's not what is happening. Instead, they say, no, he can't be the Messiah. He's no king. He's just, just a, a, a common guy from this small town. When the Messiah comes, I'm sure he's going to be full of splendor and majesty. But look at Jesus. He's ordinary. I mean, he's got calluses on his hands from, from a, you know, being a carpenter. And it really gives us, doesn't it, some insight into the, the incarnation. We would could say the glory of the incarnation, or even maybe the the mystery of the incarnation. The glory of the incarnation, that the holy, eternal, almighty Son of God became an ordinary human being. We we just been talking about and singing about, you know, the God, there's no one like you. You're far above all other gods. And yet, God the Son became an ordinary human being who didn't stand out in the crowd at all. Isaiah 53, 2 says, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah to come, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus, the Holy Son of God, became an ordinary man, an ordinary human being without sin, certainly, but yet ordinary to look at. So they had, the people had in their mind what they thought the Messiah would be like. And Jesus was not fitting their, their expectation. He was not fitting the bill at all. So they're, not only are they saying, no, you know, they're not just saying, Jesus, I think you're mistaken, you know, that's cute and all, but I mean, they're actually offended, right? They're saying, no, this is offensive. Who is this guy to claim to be the Messiah? Who is he to come, come here and try to lead or teach us? He's just an ordinary guy. So they're offended. That word offended, by the way, means a stumbling block. 
means a stumbling block. So they found in Jesus these obstacles that were in the way of them accepting, believing that he is the Messiah. Of course, the Bible would teach us that the biggest obstacles was their own unbelief, right, in their hearts. That was the biggest obstacles. But they're rejecting Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And again, I think this is especially tragic. Here Jesus is rejected by his hometown. I mean, you know, kind of the notion is, right, kind of the prevailing thought or wisdom is no matter how cruel the outside world is, you're always supposed to be able to find support and acceptance at home, right? It's supposed to be kind of like a safe place that you go. But that's not the case for Jesus. Here, the the long-awaited Messiah that that all the Jews have been longing for is right there in their midst and, and had even grown up in their midst. And yet now Jesus has come back. He's begun his public ministry. He's bringing in the kingdom of God. He's presenting himself as the Messiah, as God's perfect king, but they've rejected him. The New Testament talks about this. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, The true light, speaking of Jesus, of course, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, verse 12 goes on to say, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So they're rejecting Jesus. His hometown's rejecting him. And now in verse 57, Jesus responds to them by quoting a well-known proverb at the time. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And then it goes on to say, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he gives them this proverb, and it's like, yeah, usually a person, again, is better received at home than anywhere else. But that's not the case for a prophet. That's not the case for someone who speaks for God. History has showed, has shown, I should say, that prophets, those who had, those who were revealing God's will for the people of Israel, those who were like the mouthpieces for God, bringing God's word to them, history shows that in, in the history of Israel, those prophets had consistently been rejected by their own people and even killed by their own people. And so here Jesus aligns himself with the Old Testament prophets, right? I mean, he, he is the, the, the ultimate prophet, isn't he? He's the one speaking for God. He's the one revealing God's will. He come proclaiming a message, good news, in fact, from God. But the people would not believe God's word. They rejected God's truth. And so because of the unbelief of the people of Nazareth, verse, what is it, 58 says, Jesus would not do many mighty works there. Now that doesn't mean that their unbelief somehow, you know, hindered his power. No, I mean, he could do, he had all power to do the mighty works if he chose to. But he's saying because of their unbelief, he's choosing not to do Mighty works there, not to do many mighty works there, I guess Matthew says. And that reminds us, well, what is the purpose of those mighty works, right? The mighty works were to point to and validate, to affirm Jesus' message that the the kingdom of God is here. The the mighty works were to draw people to faith in Christ. The the miracles were God's gracious way of taking people who who heard Jesus' teaching, but maybe were still kind of in doubt. They were open to it, but they were not sure. It's like the miracles were to kind of put them over the edge into belief, right? The miracles were to encourage them, to to, um, affirm, to build up faith in them, to convince them, we could say, that yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he is bringing in the the promised uh, characteristics of the kingdom of God. But here the people of Nazareth are so resolute in their rejection of Jesus that Jesus does not do many mighty works there. It's like he's saying, it's not appropriate for me to do mighty works. You guys have already made up your minds. 
And again, we've seen this over and over, right? Jesus did not come to just be some sideshow miracle worker. No, his miracles were to point to who he is. And so if people have already rejected outright who he is, then there's really no point to continue to do mighty works. It's kind of like the, it's time to shake off the, the dust, right, from the sandals and move on. So here we have Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, John 1 says. He was the promised Messiah who had come to, look, to deliver God's people from sin, death, and Satan. But Jesus was rejected by the people of Nazareth, his own hometown. So that's the first heading. The second heading is the rejection of John the Baptist by Herod. We see a similar pattern. Now it's the rejection of John the Baptist by King Herod. Now we move into chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. First, let's make sure we understand who this guy is. Herod the Tetrarch is also Herod Antipas. Antipas, there we go. Herod Antipas. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible, right? So sometimes you have to keep them straight. So when Jesus was a baby, right, and uh, was born in Bethlehem, and you had that Herod that, you know, when he hears of Jesus' birth, sends and has all the kids, the boys killed in Jerusalem, right? That was Herod the Great. That was Herod Antipas's father. So now here we have the son, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch. He ruled over a fourth of the kingdom. And Herod was a Jew who worked for the Romans. The Romans put him in charge of a certain area, which included Galilee, where Jesus is ministering. So he's, he's like the, the regional king, okay? So verse 1 says that this Herod has heard about the fame of Jesus. And again, news about Jesus is spreading everywhere, not just in the little villages, but now all the way to the, the palace, to the capital, right? When Herod hears about how Jesus is casting out demons and powerfully healing people and teaching with authority to great crowds, Herod becomes afraid. That's the sense we get here, is is he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Well, again, Herod is a Jew. So no doubt he was familiar with the Old Testament. He was familiar with how God has worked in the past. He knew how God has powerfully worked through his his servants, through his messengers in the Old Testament, through his prophets. And so when he hears these things about Jesus, his mind is, he's thinking, God's doing something here, and I'm in trouble. (laughs) But notice, um, he's trying to figure out who Jesus is, and we know from the other gospel accounts there are several opinions floating around out there. Some are saying, oh, it's Elijah, come back. Or maybe it's another, Jesus is another one in the line of prophets, Some think it was John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's what Herod thinks. He thinks this is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead, now has special powers. Herod's beliefs were this weird um, mixture of theology, you know, again, from growing up as a Jew, but superstition, right? But what he's really afraid of is, because we're going to see, and this is what Matthew explains to us now, is he's feeling guilty. Because he's had John the Baptist put to death. And now he, when he hears about Jesus, he thinks, this is, this is, I'm getting, God's getting his vengeance on me, right? This is John the Baptist raised from the dead, now with special powers, I'm in trouble. That's what Herod's thinking. And that's why then, and to understand this passage, you need to recognize verses 3 through 12 are like a flashback, right? Verses 1 and 2 is what's presently happening And then verses 3 is pointing us back to what has happened in the past. In the recent past, this has happened sometime since chapter 11. Because if you remember, in chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. That's when he's sending messengers to Jesus saying, Are you really the Messiah or the one that's to come, or should we be looking for another? Remember? So John was in prison but still alive. Well, somewhere between chapter 11 and now here, chapter 14, this has happened. John the Baptist has been put to death. And so Matthew tells us the, the whole scenario there, that what took place. Verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him, though he, Herod, wanted to put him, John, to death, Herod feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. (laughs) So you see what's happening there? Herod is in an adulterous relationship with Herodias. And history records Herod was married to somebody else. Herodias was married to Herod's brother, Philip. And they both get unlawful divorces and marry each other. So it was sin. It was adultery. Right? And guess what? John the Baptist called him on it. Right? That's what it says. John had been saying to him, verse 4, it is not lawful for you to have her. John the Baptist had some guts, didn't he? he he's, he's bringing the word of God. He's bringing God's truth even to King Herod and saying what you are doing is wrong. You are breaking God's word. And so Herod didn't like that, of course, and imprisoned him, wanted to put him to death. But like it said, you know, he was, he, he was afraid of the revolt. But then he gets in this situation. I won't go through the whole thing again. We read it earlier. He gets in this situation with the party and he gets caught in an oath. Now he doesn't want to look bad in front of his guests. And so he does have John the Baptist put to death. Because, of course, Herodias was the mastermind behind all this. She was holding a big time grudge against John too, right? Because John had called her out as a sinner as well. But, and so, I mean, that's, this is... This is our history. This is our brother in Christ, John the Baptist. And so it's, it's, God has revealed that to us, what happened to him. But what I want to highlight this morning is that John the Baptist spoke God's truth to King Herod. Herod rejected it, so much so that, Herod, that it cost John his life, right? Herod rejected God's truth. Because when John said, hey, it's not lawful for you to have her, Herod could have said, oh, you're right, you know. I, I repent, you know, I, I was wrong. But no, he didn't, he rejected that truth and instead silenced God's messenger. So here we have John, who was the last of the old covenant prophets. Remember, John was the forerunner. He was like this transition between the old covenant and the new covenant. He was the one, just like all the prophets, who was proclaiming the, the Messiah who was to come, yet John the Baptist had this special privilege of actually getting to see the Messiah with his own eyes and hand the baton off to the Messiah himself in the flesh. And now here we have John, this last of the old covenant prophets who is silenced. And so he follows in the same footsteps of the prophets before him, the prophets who were killed because they faithfully delivered God's truth to a sinful world that rejected the message. And so if you want to read about that, we'll, we'll come up to it eventually in Matthew 23. Jesus is, uh, what I mean is, if you want to read about how the prophets were treated, how this is what always happened to the prophets, in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to say, be saying woe to the Pharisees. And he's saying woe to them. You guys have the same hard heart, the same spirit of unbelief. You're just like your fathers who rejected and killed the prophets before you. Jesus will say that in Matthew 23. Stephen, in in Acts 7, right as he's about ready to be martyred, right? He's preaching against the, the, the religious leaders. He says in Acts 7, 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? So you see, this is the pattern, loved ones. When God's truth is brought to a sinful world, how does that sinful world respond? By and large, and apart from God's grace, the sinful world responds with hatred, with rejection, with vitriol, with persecution. Okay? And so here in Matthew 14, this account of John the Baptist, again, just uh, reiterates that. But also, notice how that account ends, right? It says, uh, when John had been beheaded, um, 
his, John's disciples went and buried his body, and then the report was brought to Jesus. They went and told Jesus. And so, like it often happens in the Gospels, there's this connection between John the Baptist and Jesus. And really, as you're reading that in, in Matthew 14, it's kind of ominous. Again, not only because what happened to John the Baptist is tragic, but it's foreshadowing what's going to happen to Jesus, right? He, too, is going to stand before King Herod and Pontius Pilate. And they're going to reject him, reject God's truth. And he, too, is going to be put to death by different means, right? By being crucified on a cross. So this is, there's kind of a, uh, it's preparing us for what's going to happen. But I'll talk more about Christ's rejection later. But so far we've seen the two headings, the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth and the rejection of John the Baptist by Herod. And I want to thirdly and finally and briefly (laughs) point out this third heading, the rejection of God's word now. The rejection of God's word now. Loved ones, the rejection of God's truth did not just happen during Bible times, right? It's still happening. This fallen world is still rejecting God's truth. Last week I preached from 2 Timothy 4, but let me read a couple of verses to you again. 2 Timothy 4, 3, the Apostle Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. So this is still happening. It's always going to happen. This fallen world is going to continue to reject God's truth. Why? Why does this world reject God's truth? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> I mean, don't people like truth in general? You know, I mean, that's why, you know, we, we, people complain about, oh, fake news, you know, where's the truth? Well, when they hear the truth, the real truth, the truth from God, by and large, they reject it. And the Bible explains to us why. It was in the passage that Daniel read earlier. John three nineteen, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's why, right? Isn't that what Herod didn't like? (laughs) Don't expose my works. That's why people reject the truth of the gospel. That's why the people reject the biblical truth of the sanctity of life and marriage and human sexuality and and, you know, how we should be treating one another. Because they don't want their evil deeds exposed. Or maybe like the people of Nazareth, they, they don't think you should, or we should be able to claim to have the truth, right? So... <laughs> I know it sounds like kind of a discouraging message, and I, I don't mean it to be, but I just want us to kind of have our eyes wide open and realize this fallen world has set itself against Christ and his kingdom. And so this fallen world is going to, apart from God's grace, reject God's truth. So with that in mind, I want to give us three takeaways. Three takeaways. Number one, embrace God's truth. Right? We're talking a lot about truth. And that's the first thing. That's the foundational thing. That's the most important thing is you need to embrace God's truth. There is truth. Right? Even that is, you know, not accepted in our age today. Right? But there is actual truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. Jesus Christ has come. 
He has brought in the kingdom of God. He has lived a perfect life. He has defeated sin. He's rose from the dead in victory over sin and death and Satan. He lived and died in the place of sinners. He has ascended to his throne. And he's reigning now at the Father's right hand as Lord of all. He is the truth and he is the way. And he is the life. He is the only way for sinners to be made right with God. He is the forever king. And he is the final judge. There is truth and Jesus is the truth. And so today, you're blessed to hear the truth. We're blessed to have the truth. It's being proclaimed to you now that the truth that Jesus is the only Savior and Lord. And so I don't want to take anything for granted. I, I, I call on all of you under the sound of my voice to embrace the truth. To embrace Jesus by faith as Savior and Lord. To recognize we're not just doing religion here. We're not just playing games. No, we're, we're talking about reality. What is true? And what's true is there is a Lord and there is a Savior and it's Jesus. And praise God, he's come and, and made a way for us to be made right with him. And the Bible says we need to then repent of our sins and embrace him as Lord and Savior. And each one of us needs to do that. It's not enough just to kind of know the truth and kind of say, okay, well, that's fine. That can be truth for you. No, we're each going to be faced with that truth one day when we stand before him. And so I urge you to personally embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord today. Embrace God's truth. That's number one. Second then is proclaim God's truth. I mean, the good news is that when you embrace God's truth, the Bible says you are saved from your sins. All that sin that separated you from God will be washed away by the shed blood of Christ. You'll be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ. You'll get to be with God forever. And so that's good news. That's good news for us who embrace it. And that's good news that we are to proclaim to others. And so that's my second exhortation is proclaim God's truth. The truth that Jesus is Savior and Lord, that's true. It's not popular today, but it's true. And by God's grace and it, in his, with his enabling, we need to proclaim it in a loving and winsome and wise way and bold way. That's what God calls us to do, loved ones. He calls us to proclaim the gospel to those around us. And as Paul says in Colossians 4, let us pray for open doors for the gospel let us pray that God would, would be working on people's hearts and give us that open door to proclaim the truth, to speak the truth in love. And then we pray for God to give us grace and boldness to proclaim it clearly and boldly and lovingly. And here's what we need to be reminded about when it comes to proclaiming the truth. God is glorified through the proclamation of truth. Did you know that? Because again, it may sound pretty um, discouraging today. Well, you're just saying, you know, people are going to keep rejecting the truth. Sadly, some are, many are, not everybody. But even before we get to that, that's really God's prerogative, right? God is, is glorified through the proclamation of the truth. God is glorified as you and me, by faith and independence on him, seek to testify to the truth. Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior. I live for him. He has saved me from my sins. God is glorified through that proclamation, even if they sadly would reject it. But God is gracious. Remember that. Let us not forget that. Praise God God is gracious, right? Or we too would have still be rejecting the truth. God is gracious, and so not everyone will reject the truth. Not everyone will be repelled by the light. By God's grace, some will be drawn to God, drawn to Christ. They'll be drawn to the light of the world. Because they will have, have recognized the wages of sin is death, and that this is going nowhere, and they, they need hope. And we have that good news of hope. So let us embrace the truth, 
proclaim God's truth. And then lastly, loved ones, stand firm in God's truth. Stand firm in God's truth. This fallen world rejects the truth that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And again, they're going to ridicule and take offense at this truth. They're going to pressure and persecute Christians to abandon God's truth. And so, brother and sister today, I call on you, by God's grace, to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Do not waver from the truth that Christ is Savior and Lord. It's amazing. i just doing a simple word search. Just how many times in the New Testament we're exhorted to stand firm. I'm just going to give you a few. This is not exhaustive at all. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Wow, there's a word for all of us. There's a word for young people who are venturing out of the home onto your own. Hold firm to the truth that you've been taught. The world's going to pressure you to, to abandon it, to, to, as we've been studying on Sunday nights, right, to deconstruct it and try to put it back together in some more palatable, acceptable way by the world's standards. No, we can't do that. We have to stand firm in the truth because that's the truth that saves. Philippians 4.1 Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, he says. Do you hear Paul's passion there to the, to the church who's doing well? But he's saying, stand firm. He knows that the, the waves are, are beating against you. The winds of false doctrine are blowing against you every day in this fallen world. And so he says, stand firm. Philippians one twenty seven. I'm going to read through verse 30. Listen to this passage. It's a good um, reality check for us, I guess, as we go out into this world. Paul says, Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Do you hear what he's saying, loved ones? He's saying, walk worthy, walk in a way that's fitting of the life that you've been given, the salvation you've been given. And I want to hear that you're standing firm in the gospel, not just in an isolating way. No, he says that you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That sounds like proclaiming the truth to me. And he's saying, as you do that, you're engaged in conflict. And that means spiritual warfare, right? Not a not a, a, a hateful, vengeful kind of thing that, that we inflict. No, you're engaged in conflict. You're engaged in spiritual warfare. This, this world, this fallen world system is going to be rejecting you. Satan and, and his minions are going to be rallying against that. And so they're going to be persecuting you. And he says, guess what? That's what we've been called to. That's what we've been called to. We've been called to salvation Praise God. And also to persecution, he says. To be persecuted if it's God's will. For Christ's sake. We stand firm by God, God's enabling grace as we meditate on the promises of the gospel. That's how we stand firm, right? I've been talking about stand firm, stand firm. How do we do that? It's by God's grace as we continue to soak our minds and our lives in the truth. As we meditate on the promises of the gospel, or as Ephesians 6 talks about in spiritual warfare, as we put on the full armor of God. That's putting on the gospel armor, right? Another passage for you to consider 
The study on your own, I'll read it quickly. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So as the word of Christ is dwelling among us richly, as we're so saturated by the, by the gospel truth, we just stand firm and, and, and he helps us endure whatever hardships come our way. And, and he gives us grace that we're, we're not shaken by those. We're, we're, we're firm in the gospel. And we're even rejoicing that we are counted worthy to suffer for the, for the name of Christ. So do not be ashamed of the gospel. Keep believing and following Christ no matter what it costs you in this world. I've tried to prepare us for the reality that it's going to get rejected a lot. But don't be ashamed of it. Be encouraged that God will be with you, giving you strength to stand firm. And I close with this. I said we'd circle back around to Jesus' rejection. We know he was ultimately rejected by his people and even, as we sang, forsaken by his father so that we could be saved. But I was encouraged as I thought about this theme of rejection and truth that Christ's rejection secured our final victory. Christ's rejection purchased a future for us where one day there'll be no more rejection. There'll be no more unbelief one day. Right? There's coming a day where there'll be no more uh, persecution, no more suffering, no more rejection of God's truth. No, there's coming a day, loved ones, when Christ returns and we're all raised and with him forever, that we'll be with all the saints, we'll be with all the prophets, we'll be with all the martyrs who died for the sake of the gospel, and we'll get to rejoice and worship with them together around the throne and in the glory of God's, of God's truth and the glory of Christ. What a day that will be, right, where there's no more struggle, no more pushback, just relishing in the truth of God's grace and salvation. So may that encourage you to stand firm as we await his return. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we do praise you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for giving many of us here, Lord, the the eyes to see that, the the new hearts, the faith to believe and embrace his, his truth. I pray for any here today who don't know him as Lord and Savior, May you today, through your word, convince them that your word is true and that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And help us all, Lord, to stand firm, we pray. And thank you for uh, the Lord's Supper that we can now take together. That is just a way of meditating on the gospel, a way of encouraging our hearts and putting on that gospel armor. In Jesus' name, amen. So we do want to transition into the Lord's Supper now, and um, again, we've, our minds have already been directed toward Christ and his, his finished work on the cross, but I just wanted to read a few verses from Isaiah 53. We referenced it earlier when talking about the, uh, no majesty in him, that, that we should be drawn to him. But let me read the surrounding verses. Again, this is... Hundreds of years before Jesus came, but yet it was um, prophesying it because this was God's plan all along. Speaking of, of Jesus, the Messiah, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So again, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who did not deserve to be rejected or questioned in any way, willingly submitted to being rejected by sinful men and willingly died on the cross as a substitute for his people, as a sacrifice for sin. He willingly subjected himself to that. The Father willingly poured out his wrath on his own Son so that all who believe could be forgiven. And so, praise God. May may you be blessed today as you think about Christ's rejection and what what he has purchased, what he's accomplished through that, that now our sins are washed away, right? White as snow. Now we're reconciled to God. Now we're, says the chastisement, his chastisement has brought us peace. We're at peace with God. So even though the world, even if the world rejects us, we know God will not reject, reject us. He loves us and he's declared us righteous in Christ. He's our father. And so if I could have the men um, come and, and, and wait on us, please, with the, the elements for the Lord's Supper. And as they do that, I, let me just um, give a few instructions that come from God's Word. Um, they're they're going to pass these out, and um, we'll, then we'll have a, a, some time of just personal, quiet reflection and prayer and thanksgiving to God. But the Bible says the Lord's Supper is open to all who believe in Jesus as their Savior and are demonstrating this belief by following Christ as their Lord. The Bible does warn us that the Lord's Supper is only for the family of God. Um, So if you don't know Christ, if you have not publicly identified with Him as Lord and Savior, we would ask that you just not take of the Lord's Supper, just, just let it pass by. But may, um, may this time, again, just point us all to what Christ has done for us.